0: Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to the moment to open the Word of God, and we pray that your Spirit might use the truth, illuminate every heart and mind to that which you have provided for us in revealing Jesus to us through your Word. May we have receptive hearts, may we be as the clay in the hand of the potter, so may we submit ourselves unto you that you would mold us in conforming us to the image of your dear Son. And Father, may the Word of God take root within our hearts and become fruitful through our lives by the working of your Spirit. And we pray all this to your glory and to your honor. We ask that you would remove anything that would hinder us, Lord, this morning in declaring with clarity your Word, but also anything that would hinder those who would hear from the Word of God being taken in. And and receiving it with joy and with gladness, and that it take root and grow and mature us in the faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Over the past several weeks, we have examined Paul's statements concerning, in the latter part of chapter 3, concerning both the enemies and the friends of the cross of Jesus Christ. Within our study, we discovered that both the enemies and the friends of the cross "...are marked by certain distinctive attributes, which are a result of the mindset of each. While the enemies of the cross possess an earthly and temporal mindset, we know our perspective, serving their own sinful lust, as Scripture teaches, those who are the friends of the cross possess a spiritual and eternal mindset or perspective." The spiritual uh, perspective that is possessed by those who are friends of the cross, those who've come to faith in Christ, is is the direct result of who we are and a direct result of to whom we belong. The friends of the cross have roots in heavenly citizenship. In other words, while we live in the kingdoms of this world, in the civilization of this world, we belong and we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And this dictates how we view this life, how we view this life's purpose, and how we view the end of this life, or this life's end. Verses 18 through 21 deal with both the enemies and friends of the cross. Verse 18 begins, For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction and whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things." For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, and it may, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And we spent many weeks looking at these, the, that passage of Scripture, of the enemies and the friends of the cross. And this morning, we're going to begin our study of this final chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Eight months ago, we began our study of this epistle with an overview of the letter, at which time I provided you a generalized or general outline of how this epistle focuses on the excellency of knowing Christ. Paul stated in his thesis statement in chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10, in which he exhorted the church to approve things that are excellent, which is to say, test and examine the things that are superior. Now again, if we're going to acknowledge anything to be inferior, we must first acknowledge that there is something superior to that by which we compare the inferior unto. And Paul makes it clear in chapter 3, as we have seen in the previous verses, that he had this impressive resume in which, of course, he declared and stated that if any man can boast in the flesh, then I can boast more than any other man in the flesh. That which I've accomplished, he says, I am a, uh, that I, my, my heritage, my lineage, and what I've done and accomplished, and how I've lived. He says that he was uh, uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised the eighth day. He says that he uh, was a zealot, religious zealot, and that he he had this passion to to serve God, as so he thought. And to continue, and and he was known and recognized as such. But then Paul makes a statement that he counts all those things as lost. Everything that he thought that he could hold up to God as righteousness. Anything that he claimed he was, or anything that he claimed he had done or accomplished, he says, I was looking at these things as though they were my righteousness. I... I looked and viewed them as though this is what I could hold up to God and say, well, look, God, look who I am. Look what I've done. I have followed your law. I have been obedient. I have served you. But he says now after seeing Jesus, after recognizing Christ, coming to faith in Christ, he said all of those things are inferior. I, I consider them as garbage, as refuse, that I may know Christ, that I may win him. And so Paul, Paul acknowledged this truth and, and his thesis statement again being that Exhorting these Philippian believers to approve things that are excellent, things that are superior. The word excellent means superior. And we see this thesis unfold within this epistle in 10 major sections, which we have looked at over the past many months. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see the excellency or superiority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, 19 through 30, we see the excellency or the superiority of salvation in Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 1 through 13, The excellency or the superiority of the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 14 through 18, the excellency or superiority of uh, following Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, 19 through 30, the excellency or superiority of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 1 through 16, the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 17 through 21, the excellency of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, 1 through 7, the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ, which is our text this morning. In chapter 4, 8 through 14, the excellency of the contentment that is in Jesus Christ. And then chapter 4, 15 through 23, the excellency of God's provision in Jesus Christ. And so Paul outlines in these 10 sections. The superiority of knowing, following, fellowship, serving, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, of depending and resting in the sufficiency of Christ alone. And this morning, our focus is on the eighth of these ten sections or divisions in chapter one, verses one through seven, where Paul explains the excellency of the peace of God through Jesus Christ, that this is superior to all other things. Now, the reference to peace, it means harmony and tranquility or calm and quietness. And the universal desire within the heart of every man is that he might experience peace. Yet, the peace that most seek is subjective. It is only a feeling of peace. It is the feeling of security. A feeling that makes an individual feel safe without worry. Although men may boast of reaching peace among themselves, man's peace never lasts. Research done for a journal published by Moody Bible Institute revealed that since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. The periodical claimed that of over 3,000 years of recorded history, only 286 years saw peace. Moreover, in excess of 8,000 peace treaties were made only to be broken. This example serves as a reminder that the peace for which men seek and boast of achieving is nothing more than a facade. It is like a mirage. It's always just beyond one's reach. True peace is not subjective. True true peace is objective, and it is not a feeling. It is fact that is based in faith. There is no real peace until we experience peace with God. Any other peace that is relatively referred to as peace, any other peace is not peace at all. It's only subjective feelings. There is no real peace until we know the peace of God in Jesus Christ. And this truth is demonstrated in the fact that men do not even live up to their own expectations or standards. Yet in Christ, this peace provided with God is not based on our performance, but in God's provision through Jesus Christ. As Paul explained in verse 7, look at verse 7 with me of chapter 4 of Philippians this peace comes only through Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We are kept through Christ because the peace of God comes through Christ. Now, it's important that we recognize that this declaration of the peace of God that would keep the hearts and minds of the Philippian believers was preceded by Paul's charge to the church, which we see in verses 1 through 6 of Philippians chapter 4. In other words, Paul explains that it is through the truths which he listed in verses one through six that this peace of God through Jesus Christ would be realized within the lives of the Philippian believers. Let, Let me let me pause here for a moment to remind you of something. There is one thing to possess this peace; it's another thing to live in realization of this peace. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. If you've been born again, the moment you step into eternity, you are perfected by the, by the work of God which he has determined before time to conform you to the image of his son. We will, he will present us faultless and blameless before him, and nothing can change that. This is peace with God. We are at peace with him because of Christ. Christ has reconciled us through the cross Paul makes a statement, of course, but that we have peace being reconciled by the cross of Christ. And again, the word reconciliation or reconciled, it literally means to remove the hostility. So God has removed the hostility that existed between us and those who are in Jesus Christ. So we're at peace with God. But it's another thing to live in the reality of that peace, to understand that peace, to recognize that peace to live consistently realizing this peace that God has provided in Jesus Christ. And so we recognize this statement in verse 7 is preceded by this prescription, if you will, that is given to us. And in this prescription, however, this is not the way we achieve peace. The peace is through Jesus Christ. But yet we recognize and realize this peace in which we can live because of Christ in the following Manner. It's important again that we acknowledge that this peace is provided only through Jesus Christ. However, we realize or live in the truth of this peace as we appropriate God's provision for us as citizens of heaven. Remember, he just mentioned, oh, these are the enemies of the cross, chapter 3. But then he says, our conversation, our citizenship is not earthly. It is not temporal. Our mindset, our perspective is to be eternal and spiritual because we belong to an eternal abode. And so our mindset is different because of the home to which we belong. And Paul is really continuing that truth in chapter 4. And then, of course, he concludes in this portion of the text with the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So as we live according to the heavenly culture to which we belong, remember last week we looked at that, people of foreign cultures seem strange or foreign to us, hence we call them foreign cultures. And our culture is foreign to so many others. But yet, we live according to our own culture. We live according to that which we know. And so for the, for the unregenerate man, for those who know not Christ, they live according to a worldly mindset because that's all they know. But for we who've been redeemed, we are citizens of a heavenly home. And we have a spiritual life and a spiritual mindset and a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective because we do not belong to a temporal earthly world, but to that which is eternal and spiritual. Paul clearly states that this peace of God through Jesus Christ shall keep both our hearts and minds. And so the question is not, do we have this peace of God as believers? If you do not know Christ, then you, not, you are not at peace with God. But as followers of Christ, the question is not, do we possess this peace or do we have this peace? But rather, the question would remain, how do we realize? Or how is it that we experience, quote unquote, this peace of God throughout our lives? But in this passage, I believe we find God's prescription for realizing this peace and joy daily within our lives as friends of the cross. Let's look again at verse 1 of chapter 4. And in this verse, we see that God's peace is experienced when or as we remain steadfast. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, "...so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved." So stand. He's not telling them to stand fast because they have not been standing fast. He's telling them to remain steadfast in the Lord. I previously mentioned Paul had a special love for the believers at Philippi. This church had ministered to Paul on a faithful basis, even when others failed to do their part in furthering the gospel ministry of the apostle. Paul explained the importance of their partnership in the ministry of the gospel within this fourth chapter. In chapter 4, verse 10, let's get a little ahead of ourselves. Paul writes, "...but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me have flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity." Here Paul, of course, is explaining he is rejoicing because now they have cared for him again because they were able to. He says, "...I know before you were looking and anticipating opportunity, but you were not able to do so. But now you're able again, and I rejoice in your partnership." In the gospel, remember, now. if you don't understand who Paul is and you don't know the life and ministry of Paul, one could look at this as though Paul is saying selfishly, oh, I'm really glad that you're, you're supporting me again. I'm glad to gain your financial or your, your physical support. No, he is saying, I am thankful that you once again are able to partner in the gospel ministry to which God has called me. He says, I know you wanted to before, but you weren't able to, but now you are able and I am thankful that you are able now to partner again in the ministry of the gospel as you so desired. Paul spoke of the Macedonian churches supplying his need in the ministry of the gospel in his epistle to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11.9, Paul wrote, And when I was present with you and wanted and need, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. Obviously, we understand in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is rebuking them. The entire letter is that I've rebuked by large. And Paul is rebuking them because though he is ministering to this, this wealthy, affluent church at Corinth, They do not care at all become partners with him in the gospel ministry at this point. They're not supplying to his need. While the churches of Macedonia are coming to Paul to help provide the need that is present. And Paul says, I will not be chargeable to you. In other words, Paul is saying, I am not going to receive from you apart from your willingness and desire to partner in the ministry of the gospel with me. He says, God will provide and God will take care, even though it's to your shame that those from Macedonia have come. The churches from Macedonia have sent men to minister and and others to minister to me in the ministry of the gospel while you lacked to do so. So he's he's rebuking them here. And when he speaks about the churches or the brethren which came from Macedonia, we need to understand a little geography here. The region in Greece known as Macedonia included the towns of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And these were not affluent churches. And yet, Paul received support from these churches, while the prosperous church at Corinth neglected to provide for Paul's need, for which he rebuked them. Furthermore, this church at Philippi was significant to Paul and the region due to Paul's call to Macedonia, which was the first established in Greece. Acts sixteen nine through 12, we read, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days." It is because of Paul's close relationship to and love for these believers at Philippi and in Macedonia that Paul made such statements as he does in this verse. Look back at verse 1 now. Therefore, my dearly brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. Why would Paul make such a statement? The language which which Paul used in this verse is unmistakably his attempt to express his deep love and care for this church at Philippi and the Macedonian churches altogether. While Paul does use similar, similar language <clears throat> excuse me, when addressing other churches, within this epistle, we see an abundance of Paul's expression of love for this church. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says of Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And the innermost part, is saying, chapter 1, 23 through 26, For I am in a strait betwixt two, he says, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He says, ultimately, I want to be with the Lord, and this would be the greatest of the fulfillment of any desire I might have. He said, nevertheless, verse 24, nevertheless, nonetheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So Paul is saying, I desire to be with the Lord, but he loved these Philippians so much that he says, though I desire to be with the Lord, which is my greatest desire, I long to be with you as well. And I recognize and am willing to remain in the will and purpose of God that your furtherance of joy in the ministry of the gospel might continue. He says, so I love you, I have a longing for you. Paul also referenced the church of Thessalonica. Why would he have done that? Because I told you a moment ago, Berea, Philippi, the, the chief colony, but Berea, Philippi, and Thessala, Thessalonica were all part of that region of Macedonia. And listen how Paul refers to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 19 and 20, very similar to that which he states in Philippians. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Before these statements Paul made in 1 Thessalonians 2, which we've just read, Paul had addressed these believers again in a very similar manner as he did the church at Philippi in chapter 1, verse 3. In chapter 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Thessalonians, we read We give thanks to God always for you, all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Paul went on to say that the believers in Thessalonica were examples to other believers and then expounded on the basis for such a statement in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Both those in Thessalonica and Philippi were known for their steadfastness In the Lord, Paul referenced the testimony of the steadfastness of the Philippians in his opening address of the epistle, chapter one, verses four through six. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So while Paul has already acknowledged in chapter 1 his introduction and address to the Philippians, he's already acknowledged that they are faithful in the word. He's already acknowledged that since the time of coming to faith in Christ, they have faithfully walked with the Lord, followed Christ, and furthered the gospel, have been in fellowship in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 1 again. Therefore, my dear brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Now, if you can't see Paul's affection for the Philippian believers in this verse, we surely see it throughout the previous chapters of this epistle, but we see it somewhat greatly summarized here. Paul says, my dearly beloved, my dearly beloved. He says, so stand fast. And again, he's not instructing them to do something they are not doing. He's instructing them to continue to do that which they were doing. So as we remain steadfast, as we continue in the work of the gospel, in the fellowship of the gospel, in the furtherance of the gospel, as we continue in the fellowship and following after our Lord Jesus Christ, then and only then, and there's more to it than that alone, but then and only then will we truly realize the peace of God that is present. Now let me prove this to you further. Paul is saying, you are my joy and crown. What does he mean by that? He's saying that God has used him as an apostle in founding and starting and in in the birthing of the churches of which he speaks here at Philippi and in the Macedonia region and others as well. And he says, the steadfastness and faithfulness that you have portrayed and continuing after the gospel brings me great joy. I rejoice with you as you rejoice in the truth I rejoice in the truth, and I rejoice that you rejoice in the truth, and that you follow in the truth. But let us remember something here as well. Paul is speaking about this joy. Paul is talking about this crown and this glory, and he speaks of these Philippian believers saying, oh, my dearly beloved, how I love you, how I long for you. And we must remember that when Paul wrote this, and we're talking about God's peace, remember, The peace of God that passes all understanding, the peace of God that comes wholly and fully in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit of God when we are redeemed, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This peace is now present. I have peace with God. And nothing can change that. Which is wonderful. Nothing can change the peace that I have with God because Christ doesn't change and God the Father doesn't change. Therefore, the peace that I have received because and in Christ is unchanging. But then there is a realization of this peace. Let us remember that Paul is not sitting in his rocker, on his porch, looking out as the birds chirp over the the landscape, writing a letter and saying, Oh, I'm long after you and I rejoice in your faith. Paul is in prison when he writes this. You want to talk about the peace of God? Here he is in the middle of a prison sentence, if you will. And he writes to these church, this church at Philippi. And he speaks to them about the great joy he has because of their joy in the gospel and in Christ. And the peace of God which passes understanding. And Paul is not giving them this statement in the theoretical sense Paul is saying that he himself experiences this joy that passes understanding and this peace that passes understanding that comes only through Jesus Christ, that keeps both his heart and his mind through Jesus Christ. Paul is writing this from prison. Well, how can Paul realize such peace while he's in prison? Because he had an eternal and spiritual mindset and perspective recognizing I am not a citizen of this world, I am a citizen of that which is eternal. And because of that, resting and trusting in Christ, finding his consolation in Christ. In fact, let's just read a little bit further to see this truth unfold. He says, verse 10, let's read that again. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Obviously, you know Philippians 4.13 is one of the verses that is taken out of context, misused horrifically in all sorts of arenas, in all sorts of contexts. It's out of context. But notice what Paul is saying. I've often told you, I think a good, a good thing to, to realize here and possibly underline in, throughout these scriptures is whenever we see Paul makes this statement in verse 11, I, for I have learned, and then he says um, to be content." And then look at verse 13 when he says, through Christ. And really, that's the message Paul is giving us here. In verse 11, he says, I have learned. And in verse 11, the latter part, to be content. And then in verse 13, through Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know what it is to suffer need. I know what it is to abound. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to not have enough. He says, but nonetheless, it is Christ in whom I am content. It is through Christ that I am kept. In a nutshell, Paul's deep love for this church was the result of the steadfastness of the Philippian church. Just as Paul and the Philippian church, as we stand fast in the Lord, we experience God's peace which passes all understanding. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether we lack or whether we have abundance, regardless of all of these things. Why? Because this is all temporal anyway. What does it really matter? Do we need sustenance for life? Of course we do. Is God faithful to provide that? Of course he is. But what if we lacked? What if we did? What if we went without? What if we were martyred for the cause of of Christ? What does all this mean? What is all of that compared to, as Paul would say, with an eternal perspective? The weight and the glory of that which God is doing. Look with me in 2 Corinthians. Paul makes a statement in verse chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 15. For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. By the way, I just want to interject this here in light of many things that have gone on and been said. That is really the biblical definition of revival. The inward man is renewed day by day. Daily as believers in Jesus Christ, our focus, our attention, we we become distracted, but yet guess what? God is constantly drawing our focus and attention back to him. That is what revival is. Then he goes on to say, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul says, All, If any man suffered for the cause of Christ, it is Paul. Remember in Acts chapter 9, whenever the Lord tells um, and an eyes concerning Paul to go to Paul and he says, I will show him, Paul, what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul suffered for the cause of Christ. There is no doubt about that. But in the midst of all of that suffering, look at what Paul is saying. He says, This is a light affliction. How can he make such a statement? When ultimately Paul would lose his life or give his life for the sake of Christ, historically stating. And yet. Even in martyrdom, he says, all of this is a light affliction. Why? Because he saw it all for what it was. (laughs) This is just temporary. None of this is going to last. He says, but God is working a far more great exceeding weight of glory, which is eternal, while we look not to the things which are seen, that which is temporal, but we look to that which is not seen, that which is eternal. So Paul possessed an eternal perspective. Hence, Paul could possess and experience this peace of God as eternal. He calls the Philippian believers to do as well. As we continue our study through this portion of this epistle in the weeks to come, we'll find that Paul explains further God's prescription for us that we might experience this peace, realize this peace that we've been provided by God through Jesus Christ. Verses 2-3, through we will see God's peace is experienced when we maintain unity in doing God's work. Third, God's peace is experienced when we express godly contentment and praise, verses 4-5. and And then verse 6, God's peace is experienced when we rest in the Lord with thankful hearts. We see this is realized here in verse 7. As we live according to these exhortations provided by Paul, we will experience, we will realize this peace. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess the peace of God. The question is not, then, do I possess this peace as a believer? If you're not a believer, you're not at peace with God. Again, I want to emphasize that. But if you have come to faith in Christ, you already possess peace with God. That's been made through Christ. So the question as a believer is not, do I have peace with God? The question is, am I living according to the heavenly citizenship to which I belong? that I might realize and regularly, daily experience this peace that I have with God through Jesus Christ? This is the question. And the reality is, you are the one who must answer it. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this peace you have given us.